Man, I had a good new year. Did you have a good new year? Yeah? Is anybody, listen, listen, listen. Maybe if you were around during Vietnam, I don't know. Or if you're old enough to be around during World War II, I, I don't know. But in my lifetime, has there ever been a year we have been more excited to see disappear, to be in the rearview mirror? Uh, it, was, it was a funny, funny, weird, horrible year in a lot of ways. But I want to point this out, and I put this on my Facebook post the other day. I have also, I have never seen God move more clearly, uh, more abundantly uh, in this church, in my family, in our, our church family, in this community that I ever have before. And that is the God's too honest truth. God moved. As bad as 2020 was for some, God moved even greater. And for that, I am thankful. And I believe uh, beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is about to do something uh, this year in the life of this church. Uh, and I, I believe and hope that it spreads all the way to the life of our country. Uh, I believe God is going to do something. And I think that uh, January is such an important time in our lives because it's a transitional time. Uh, I just want to point out, if this is your first time here and, um, and you thought like, man, they're going to do, I'm going to go because it's January and they're going to do a, you know, a new year theme. They're going to do new year's resolutions. They're going to new, uh, you know, get your life back on track, you know, something like that. I'm not going to do anything like that. I think new year's resolutions uh, are the worst possible thing in life. I've never understood this. I never understood why people wait to change for January. Oh, I'm just going to live in misery for the next three months. But come January, we're going to make a change. It's flawed from the beginning. Plus, I think only like 3% or something actually follow through. So uh, it's not about that. It, but I do believe, I do believe there is a power in transitional times. And January is definitely a transitional time. I think there is power. I think there is, when you, when you move off or away from something, you move into something, you move out of one season, you move into a different season. I do think that there is, uh, there, there's power in, in understanding that and setting the tone for that new season. And it's not just December to January, you know, 2020 to 2021. Uh, there's, this is a big transitional period in a lot of ways. I mean, we're changing uh, presidents. Uh, we're changing um, culture in, in many ways. Uh, there, there's a significant amount of things that are happening in our country that have never happened before. It seems like uh, the pandemic got worse in the last three weeks. If uh, I don't, I try not to watch the news because I like truth, so I read the Bible. But funny, but it's funny because it's true. Um, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot going on as far as transition. There's a lot. Uh, there's a lot that we're heading into. And I think that, you know, coming off the back of, of 2021, there was a ton of people uh, that in our minds, though, we're going, man, let's just say goodbye to that year, say hello to the new year. Uh, but the funny thing is about a lot of transitional is, is that nothing actually happened Thursday night at midnight, <laughs> except Friday showed up. Nothing else magically changed. But there is a power in stopping and deciding that we are going to change the tone and reset the tone of our lives the way that it needs to be. And I think there's a power in January to do that. I think that what we say in January can set the tone for the whole year. 
for our church. And I think that that's what God wants to do today. I also think that, that the tone is set by the first things that are said. Have you ever walked into a meeting? You know, I do this. I use this a lot. When I know that we've got a, a, you know, something serious, it's, it's a business meeting. We've got to sit down. We've got to have some business, talk business, have some hard conversations. I'm very, I'm very quick. I set the tone very early on. I come in. I sit down. I try not to smile. I don't let conversation go long. We just, we just jump in. We get started. And everybody at the table knows, okay, this is business. There's no joke around. If we're just, you you know, figuring out what we're going to do for lunch or something, or it's just common, normal stuff. Then we joke around a little bit. We may, you know, talk for a few minutes, laugh, and then we kind of get started and going. Uh, but the tone starts, you know, you ever know a mean, a mean teacher growing up? All my teachers were mean. I don't understand. It was, a, I may have been the common denominator, but all of them were mean uh, and abusive to a point. And, but a teacher, they, listen, you can tell what the teacher is and who the teacher is by day one. The way they set the tone in the classroom, the way that they, the way that they say something, the way they introduce something, and coaches do this. I mean, this is a big deal. And I think that in Scripture, it's incredibly important to understand that when something is introduced for the first time, the way that it's introduced and the way that it's discussed and the way that it's taught and, and the way that it's said and the way that it's presented, it, it's important to understand all of these things. They set a tone for that idea, for that thing, for, and for the rest of Scripture and really the rest of our lives. And, and I want to point out to you that there were several things that Jesus, in the New Testament, there were several things that Jesus mentioned for the first time that had never really been mentioned before. And the way that he mentions these things and the way that he says these things, it, it sets a significant tone, or at least that it should. It should set a significant tone and speak to us great volumes, not just, not just what he's talking about and what he's introducing, but the things that he chooses to focus on, on the subject that he is introducing for the first time. Does that make sense? The thing that I, I want to turn, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 16, because I want, I want to look at the very first time Jesus mentions the church to the disciples. The very first time that he talks about the church. And there's a thousand things that he could have said about it. There's a thousand ways that he could have introduced it. There's a thousand things that he could have focused on. But the way that Jesus presents the church to us, the purpose that is there behind it, and the promise that is connected to it, it should set an eternal, long-lasting, significant tone in our life for the way that we not only view the idea of church and what church is, but the way that we view our lives and the way that God is working within us around this. So I'm going to read this. This is Matthew 16, 13 uh, to 19, and I'm going to, read, I'm going to read all of it. If you have your Bibles, you can read along with me. If you have your phones, you can go there to the Bible app. If you're at home, do the same thing, but I want everybody to listen to me or to read along with me. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? Jesus is asking, who do people say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, I want to point out to you that this is the first time someone has openly declared this truth about Jesus, that he was truly the son of the living God, that he was the Christ, that he was the Messiah. This is the first time anyone has actually just declared that out of faith. 
uh, in the open. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell or Hades, depending on your translation, I like hell because it sounds better to me. So I'm just going to say hell. Hell. And the gates of hell will not overpower it, will not overwhelm it, will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So I, I, I wanna, and I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm trying to slow down. I tried to be very January-ish in the first two minutes of the sermon. I tried to talk about transition. I tried to let down the first time guess easy that we're not talking about losing weight and being back in church on time. Uh, but I'm, I'm gonna transition here in just a second and I'm just gonna start going. So I want you to pay attention to me. This is one of the most epic dialogues that Jesus Christ has with his disciples and he has with the human race in general. This is one of the most powerful, one of the most important, one of the most singular, uh, epic conversations and concepts that Jesus teaches. Yet it is one of the most widely ignored, widely cast to the side, uh, uh, pushed to the mark, especially with modern American church. Jesus opens up the door for the first time and he says, who do people say that I am? Who, I'm, I'm walking around, I'm teaching obviously with this great authority, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching the kingdom of heaven is near, I'm presenting the gospel to people, there's significant power around me, I'm healing the sick, I'm opening up blind eyes, uh, I'm, I'm debating with the Pharisees, they can't trap me, it's evident that God's with me. It's evident that I'm divine. It's evident that there's power here, but I want to know who do people say that I am. And the disciples said, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Jeremiah. Some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're some of the other prophets. And then Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, without hesitation, it seems, Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the Savior. You are the Messiah, and you are the Son of the living God. You are exactly who you say you are, and I believe this. And what we have to understand here is that this is the beginning of something. This is a transitional moment in history. Because up to this point, the church did not exist. Up to this point, the church did not exist. When the Bible says that when John the Baptist showed up, that the kingdom of heaven, from the moment John the Baptist showed up, it said that the kingdom of heaven started to advance forcefully in the earth. The kingdom of heaven did. But this is the first time that you see the kingdom of heaven translate into the earth, into a person's life with Peter. And he says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You are Jesus Christ, the savior. You are who you say you are. And Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven revealed this to you. And then he takes this moment to start what I believe is a revolution. What I believe is a revolution. That I believe is a movement. And the way that he presents this is so important. He says, listen, I am going to build my church. Now, this is the thing, and this is kind of common these days, and, and I just want to point this out to you, that church is obviously not building. That church is obviously not an organizational structure. It's obviously not a government structure. That the church, that word in the Greek is ekklesia. 
And ecclesia literally means a gathering of people. And so what has become very popular, especially in 2020, and I think I even saw a sweatshirt without, out there. I did not know they were gonna make that. I promise you this isn't planned and you should still buy the t-shirt. But what I want you to understand is that what has become so popular in 2020 because of all the shutdowns and all the people is that the church has left the building. And that's on the sweatshirt. And I promise, I didn't know you guys were gonna make that. And you still need to buy it because it's true. But what has become really popular 2020 over the last few years is that the church is not the building, the church is not the only building, the church is the what? It's the people, hallelujah, amen. Woo! It's the people, oh my goodness. I mean, you would think like they had discovered like the answer to the universe. Duh, it's the people. But the reality of it is, is it's way more than just the people. Because when you just say it's the people, you miss the point of what Jesus Christ was teaching them. Because that word ecclesia is not just, it doesn't just mean the people, and it doesn't just mean a social club. It is a very distinct word that is only used in the realm of politics and the realm of military. And what it means is, in, in this day and age, super common word, ecclesia, it meant that you would gather together a group of people around one central idea or one central leader, and to be a part of an ecclesia was almost like being a part of a gang. It was almost like being a part of a movement. It was saying that, that to be a part of this ecclesia is I believe in that leader or I believe in that purpose. I believe in that idea. I believe in that so much that I am willing to identify with it. I'm willing to gather together, to meet together with them. I'm willing to fight over it, fight for it, charge after it. I'm willing to go to war over it. This is the leader I want to follow, so I'm a part of his ecclesia. And if he goes to war, I go to war. If he fights, I fight. If he dies, I die. It's not just a social club. It's not like being a part of one of the golf clubs around here. And if you are part of a golf club, you know, that's no offense. I'm never going to be there. I don't, I don't, I'm not good at golf. I get kicked out of it. Everybody's like, did the pastor just say the F word out there on the golf course? They're lying if they did. <laughs> but it's not like being a part of a social club. It's not like even being a part of the Baptist church or the Methodist church or the Pentecostal church or this church. It's greater than that. What Jesus is saying, he says, I'm going to build a movement. I'm going to build a revolution. I'm going to build a group of people and they're going to come together and it's going to be built on this idea. Peter, the thing that you just said, that I am truly the son of the living God, that I am the savior of the world, that I am the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth, that I have come to take away the sins of man, that I've come to defeat death, hell, and the grave, that I've come to wage a war on the gates of hell, to wage a war on Satan, to wage a war on this dark, evil world and to save the people that it's trapped. This is what I've come to do. I've come to start a movement. I've come to start a revolution. And it's on this idea. That's, that's what it is. That's what you and me are. If your faith is in Jesus, I need you to understand this. Your faith is in Jesus and you're truly, truly a Christian. You have truly been saved and it's real for you. Then you're part of the church. You're part of the ecclesia. And, and you've joined this on the idea and on the belief and on the faith that Jesus Christ is the king of the universe and the savior of the world. And that to be a part of that isn't just mean that you go to heaven, but to be a part of that means that you are now a part of this movement that he started. And then he goes on and, and he says, he says, also I say to you that, uh, say to you, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church, my ecclesia, and the gates of hell will not overpower it or not overcome it. Now, this is one I preached. I preached a message similar to this a couple years back, and I got up here, and I, and I think it was called Unstoppable. Oh, it was a good sermon. 
I was younger. I was louder, if that's possible. I talked faster. I believed every single week I was like Mel Gibson in Braveheart. And, and there was a series of time when it was like unstoppable, un, unquenchable fire. Like everything was just like beast mode, just war all the time. But this is the, this is the truth though. He says, the gates of hell will not overpower. And I remember standing up and I was going, we're the church and nothing can attack us and nothing can defeat us. Amen. Amen. But I missed something in my immaturity. And I think that the church overall has missed something in their immaturity. I think the American church above all has forgotten something. There's a thousand ways Jesus could have said this. But the way that he said it was, I'm building an ecclesia, I'm building a church, and not even the gates of hell will overpower it and overwhelm it. But gates, gates don't attack anybody. See, gates are connected to walls and walls are connected to fortresses and they stand stationary. Christians, we have this uh, victim mentality that, we're, that the, what, what this means and what other scriptures like this means is that we're supposed to go throughout our life, live our life any way we want, do our thing, and that the power of God is strong on us and goes before us and stands behind us and defeats the giants and, and tears down the walls. And when we get attacked from the enemy, that nothing will hurt us and nothing will overpower us. And we paint this picture like, like and I know that we're the sheep and, and Jesus is our shepherd, but we paint this picture like we're little sheep just trying to make it through the world and the wolves of the enemy and the devil are here to try to attack us and kill us. And we're just, we're just leaning and just hoping that we make it. And that we can go into the world and, you know, hell's not going to, the devil doesn't have any power over us and we're not going to, but I I need to point something out to you. That right there, that is a victim mentality. That is uh, the devil is this big bad guy and hell is this big bad thing. And they're all around us and they're coming to attack us and they're coming to do it. And and I want to point out to you something that we forget. Gates do not attack people. People attack gates. The church was never meant to just fortify itself inside the walls and just talk about how powerful God was and that the devil can't attack them. Jesus is literally laying the groundwork to tell the church that it is you. You are the one that is going to go attack the gates of hell. You're the one that's going to go breach the gates of hell. You're the one that's going to go the gates of hell, the walls of hell, the fortress of hell. They were not going to be able to withstand your attack. And I need you to understand something because it's good. We can go, and this was my immature mistake a couple years back when we did the unstoppable thing is that I acted like I be, I, this promise was that the church can't be defeated. The church is gonna move on and hell can't overcome it and the devil can't win. But I wanna point out to you, look at our country. The church of Jesus Christ is losing. No amens on that one, huh? The church of Jesus Christ is losing. From 2015 to 2020, six million Christians left the faith. Right now, at the current projected numbers, according to Pew Research, which is one of the largest uh, research firms in America, says that by 2050, 66 million Christians will have left the faith, and there will be 66, less, 66 million less Christians in 2050 than there are right now. 
that one in five churches have been shutting every single year for a long time, and that this year it's about 33% have already shut, and even more will shut this year. Pastors are walking away. Leaders are walking away. Atheism is on a distinct rise. The uh, Islamic religion is on a steep rise. It's the fastest growing religion in our country. Somewhere along the lines, when I, when I was a kid, they started talking about uh, you know, Christianity losing ground. And that, that, that it won't be long before we're a post-Christian nation. Well, I'm going to tell you something. When I was in high school, I think we transitioned to post-Christian. And we've already left post-Christian, and now we're rolling up into anti-Christian. That's the truth. And I want to tell you something. This is a distinct thing, and this is a convicting question, but it has to ask it. Is Jesus a liar? Or is, or is something else wrong? If the gates of hell seem to be prevailing against the church in our country, if wickedness and evil and justice continue to sweep through our country, if the godlessness, a godlessness continues to sweep through our country, if atheism continues to sweep through our country, then you have, to, you have to step back and you have to go, okay, the promise is, is that the gates of hell won't prevail and that the ecclesia will. But in our country, it's been going the opposite way for years and years and years and years. And so is Jesus wrong? Is his promise untrue? Is he not faithful? And I'm gonna tell you what I feel like the Lord put in my heart. Obviously, Jesus is not a liar. And obviously, he is faithful. And obviously, this is a promise of unbelievable truth. But I don't think that the gates of hell are prevailing because they're stronger. The gates of hell are prevailing because nobody is attacking them. Nobody is fighting the battle Jesus Christ asked us to fight. Nobody is waging that spiritual war that Jesus Christ asked us to fight. Nobody thinks it's their responsibility to go after the enemy. Nobody does. But we all know something's wrong. Now, I, I, I think there's two or three reasons why we don't do this. Number one, we don't know that it's our responsibility to attack the gates of hell. We don't know that that's our responsibility, that, that us being positioned here in this community, that we inherit the responsibility to fight back the enemy in our community that we are the light in the darkness, that we are the city on the hill, that it is the faith, the love, the joy, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of his word and the power of prayer that has been given to us. As Paul says that we are fighting a war, but the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not flesh and blood, but they're divinely powerful to tear down the strongholds that trap the minds of the people around us. We don't think that's our responsibility to go after that. We don't, fathers don't think it's our responsibility to fight for the spiritual welfare of our children and our marriages. That's why 50-something percent of Christian marriages end in divorce. We're losing an entire generation, and the only thing parents care about is good grades and going to college. Man, I really hope my children die with a lot of money in the bank so they can take it to hell with them. 
We care all about what the world tells us to care about, all about what the culture tells us to care about, and we just come in and we do our Southern Christian religious thing, and we don't understand that we are in the fight of our lives. And this is the thing I think that bothers me the most is that we get all, like, we, listen, I'm so glad 2020 is over and so glad the election is kind of over. Because it, what it, it proves, it proves something to me that, that the way that Christians responded during this last election proves that they know without a doubt something is wrong, but they are not close enough to God or filled with the Holy Spirit enough to know they're fighting the wrong war. We wanted to go out and we wanted to win a spiritual war with politics, and that is impossible. And we can't curse ourselves or condemn ourselves because this was a thing that Peter struggled with. See, Peter and the disciples over and over again, they proved that they believed Jesus was there to fight Caesar. And Jesus said, no, I'm here to fight Satan. They were there to believe that Rome was the enemy. And he says, no, hell is the enemy. They were trying to defeat uh, Satan and hell, this spiritual force, by going after Caesar in Rome. And Jesus said, if you will quit fighting those battles and you will fight the spiritual battle, Rome will bow its knee to Christ. And that is exactly what happened. 300 years from the day they had this conversation, the entire Roman Empire declared itself Christian and bowed its knee down to Jesus Christ. The reality of it is, is that we're trying to vote our way into morality. God never called us to be moralists. He called us to be followers of Jesus. He never called us to involve ourselves in the policies. He called us to change the people and the culture that make the policies. When you have to win a spiritual battle in politics, it's evidence that you've already lost it. Everybody's fighting for yesteryear. Well, yesteryear disappeared because the church fell asleep inside its four walls. And from day one, he says, we're supposed to fight and we're supposed to go after the gates of hell and attack it. He says, not only that, he goes, but I want you to understand something. You have an authority he said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. He says, I'm gonna give you power and I'm gonna give you an authority to go after the enemy in your life, to fight for your children and to fight for your wife, to fight for your husband, to fight for your marriage, to fight for the lost around you, for teachers to fight for their classrooms, fight for our coworkers, Fight for our neighborhoods. Fight for our lost family members. He says, I'm going to give you the authority to do this. But we don't really see that power often. And, and this binding and loosing thing, people stay away from it. It's not that complicated. It literally just literally means it's a, it's a Middle Eastern Jewish thing. It literally means to permit or to forbid. That's it. To bind something is to, is to, is, is to forbid it. And to lose something is to permit it. This is okay, this is not okay. I say, no, it's authority. It's like when Hudson wants to come and tell me, you know, ask me something, I can, I, can, I can bind it or I can loose it. No, buddy, you can't jump off the roof. But yes, you can go to bed and take a nap. The problem is, is that we feel like we don't have it. And the Lord put something, there's two things, and I'm gonna go through this really fast. Uh, when Jesus was talking about this, what he came to the earth to do, he gives this parable in his conversation with the Pharisees. And he's talking about fighting demonic spirits and demonic forces, evil, the gates of hell. 
And Jesus makes this statement. He gives this parable and he says, it's impossible, and I'm summarizing this, it's impossible to steal something from a strong man or to rob a strong man's house without first coming in and binding up the strong man. And once you bind up the strong man, then you can take the things from his house. In this parable, Jesus is the thief, ironically, and the devil is the strong man. The thing that we forget is that uh, the enemy, the gates of hell, the culture, the Bible says he's the prince, the power of the air, that the, the culture around us, the world around us, it is, it is the kingdom of hell. They control it. They own it. It's real. And it's there. We, we sometimes, we operate in this mentality like it was, it was the, the church that was established and then the devil's coming to attack it. Not true. We were the ones that were sent from heaven to attack the gates of hell. That's why he says, go after the gates of hell. And Jesus, he, he paints this picture here. So you've got two gates, actually. You've got the gates of it. And that word Hades, by the way, it literally just means unseen. That's all it means. Hades, that we say Hades, some translate hell. It just means unseen. It's talking about deep, evil, wicked forces in this world. Not politicians, not people on the other side of the aisle from you. The enemy is not flesh and blood. The enemy, we got one enemy and his name is Satan. Everybody else is captured and we're here and we need to have compassion because some of the people that we hate the most, those are the people we're here to save. And Jesus lays this out and he goes, there's two gates. You've got the gates of hell that you're supposed to go knock down and kick their teeth in and you got the gates of heaven here and I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth, I'll bind in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, I'll loose in heaven. Basically, and I, there's different, there's ways to go, but I'm just, we're going to focus on one. He says, you can walk up, you can start battling the enemy in your life and in your family's life and in your marriage and in your school. And if you start to bind that, God says, I'll, I'm going to bind that in heaven. And if you loose it, I'm going to loose it in heaven. Meaning I'm, you're going to have real authority. You're going to have real power. And, and I want to I want to point out to you the second. So the whole point Jesus is saying, He says, before you can go in and set the people free, you have to bind up the thing that's holding them back. And He says, I'm, and Jesus, says, I'm here to bind up the strong man. That's part of what He did on the cross. And He says, and now, and now I'm giving that to you guys, to my ecclesia, to my church. And the second thing, I, the Lord led on my heart, right after the Mount Trans, uh, Transfiguration, it's in Matthew and in Mark, uh, when the, Jesus and the, the three disciples, he let go with them, they came back down from the mountain. There was a, a kind of a small little riot and a man had brought his son uh, to the disciples to be healed and to have a demon cast out of them and they couldn't do it. And so he engaged Jesus and said, can you do this? And Jesus had this conversation that's powerful, different message of a different day. And then he wound up freeing the boy from the enemy, binding up the enemy that was on his life. And when they went back, the disciples that were there, they said, why couldn't we do that? And Jesus responded with one sentence. That kind can only come out by prayer. The problem is if you go back and you read the story, Jesus never prayed at all. He talked to the Father and he talked to the disciples and he talked to the demon, but he didn't actually pray not once. And I think that it's important that you understand that because this type of prayer he's talking about is not saying in the moment, you come up and you just pray in the moment. He's saying that, that a life of prayer 
prepares you with the power that is needed to handle that thing when it comes up. Does that make sense? And so we've got this, these promises. From, and this message is not for someone, honestly, that doesn't know Jesus yet. And this isn't for someone that doesn't believe the Bible. But this message is for those of you who believe in Jesus, you put your faith in Jesus, and you do believe the word of God. I am telling you, Jesus has put a massive calling on your life, and that is to wage war against the unseen forces of darkness and to fight on a spiritual level. And that always begins with prayer. Always. Always. It begins with prayer. Prayer is the thing that's going to change you. Prayer is going to be the thing that builds up. Prayer is going to be the thing that transfers power from heaven into this world and into your life. And I'll give you just a quick example or two. The thing that I pray the most for in, over the years has been that people will feel the presence of God when they come into this room that they will feel the presence of God, that it will be overwhelming to their life. And if you go through and you watch the hundreds of baptism videos that we've done, and you listen to people's testimonies, one of the things you will hear more than anything else is, I've never felt the presence of God like I felt it at this church. Anybody want to testify to that? Just a few. Just wait. See, this is the thing. I, I don't need any tricks and gimmicks and fireworks because I actually believe in the power of the living God. And I'm not ashamed of the Holy Spirit. And I believe in the presence and the power. I believe that when we pray, that when people pray, that the power from heaven wells up inside of us and can transform a room. And while we've had atheists come in here and give their lives to Christ and marriages that were on the brink of divorce come in here and God heal them and teenagers who were throwing their life away get set free. The reason we've seen all this is not because I'm a good preacher because I'm really not, not because we got good music because we really don't, not because the grocery store is special, but because the power of God rests in this house when we gather together because we are the ecclesia, not a religious organization. And I believe that God is calling us to start fighting this spiritual war in our homes and in our marriages and in our lives and using the authority that he has given us. Because we know that something's broken. We all proved it by our Facebook rants and our political junk from last year. We know something's wrong. What I'm telling you is that we have got to stop fighting Caesar in Rome and start fighting Satan in hell. And that happens on a spiritual plane. You want your marriage to change, bring it before God in power and prayer. And I'm gonna close with the dumbest story that I could possibly tell you. I'm competitive, like it's unhealthy, how competitive I am. <clears throat> we did a personality thing a couple years back and the guy seemed very concerned. He come up, he did this huge detailed thing and he comes up and he says, okay, me and Taylor, Taylor's a worship pastor. He says, you guys, you, you have normal, median competitiveness here. And then you've got the extreme over here. But Jordan, I need you to understand, you're way out here. And he wasn't saying like it was a joke. Like he was like, we need to really talk about this. But New Year's Day, Thursday night, we play this game. I love games, strategy games. We play this game with some of our friends. And uh, I, I win most of the time. I do. I'm just, I don't want to lie to you. It's the truth. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm winning again in this game. And it was, it was very dominant. And my buddy 
started to do what he knows that I hate. I, I, I didn't yell at him. I didn't talk for an hour and a half and left early, but I didn't yell at him. But he started to, to collude. I, it's collusion. It's cheating in my opinion. They don't, they don't agree, but it's my opinion. He started to collude. He started to, to get with my sister-in-law and they, they started all talking and planning and trying to fight me. And all basically now it's me versus the whole rest of the board. And they did it and I was so mad. Oh my goodness, I was so mad. And, uh, and they did it and they did their best. Unfortunately, I won anyway. What are you gonna do? But here's what I'm telling you a story. The next day we were talking about it with me and Kyle. And Kyle made a statement. And, I, and, I, and listen, I just want to point this out to you that in the Old Testament, uh, a man slept on top of manure and then ate it. And God spoke to him and taught him a lesson in this. So I say that to say that God can speak and teach us anything, any way he wants. And he did so in this game with me. Because Kyle made this statement, and I knew that I'm preaching this message, and they didn't know this. And Kyle said, listen, dude, I'm gonna do anything. I'm like, I don't like this. I don't think it's fair. That's not how the game's designed. I'm whining. And he says, I'm gonna do anything that I can to win the game, anything. I'm, not, I'm gonna do anything that I can to win the game. And he said, when I realized you were gonna win again, I was willing to do whatever, play whatever, do whatever, whatever we, I just wanted to stop you from winning. I just wanted to do it, I'm doing whatever. And it hit me. Two things hit me. And this is how I want to close this out with this thought. One, he was willing to do whatever it took to go at whatever lengths to win. The church does not have that mentality. Jesus Christ was willing to sacrifice himself in a horrible death to give us spiritual victory over sins in the enemy. And we aren't willing to do almost anything. But the second thing, and even more important, what the Lord put in my heart is that they waited way too long to start. I had already had a dominant position. I was already set up, and there was honestly, at that point, there was nothing they could do. That's why I won anyway. They waited too long. It was too late. By the time they got desperate, it was too late. And I want to point out to you that what a transition in that game has transitioned in our culture over and over and over again. You know, there were terrorists terrorizing the whole world and our country for years, but nobody took them serious until they hit the towers at 9-11. And then we got desperate. During World War II, we let the Nazis and Japan and the Axis forces take over the, almost the entire world. And we didn't take it serious and we didn't get involved, not until they hit what? Pearl Harbor. And then we got desperate and we got lucky. It was almost too late. This is what's happening in the church. This is what's happening right now in the church is we are losing an entire generation to hell. We are losing marriages to hell. We are losing entire communities to hell. We are losing. We are losing in this country. We are losing in our community. We are losing this battle. We're losing this fight. And my greatest fear is that everybody's just going to keep sitting until something dramatic happens in our lives or something crazy happens in the world or they outlaw Christianity. 
something insane, which is not too far away, I might add. And then in that moment, we're gonna go, we're gonna turn it on. And we're gonna get desperate. And then we're gonna, and we're gonna lose. Don't wait until your kids are gone before you start fighting for them. Don't wait until you're sitting in the lawyer's office signing the divorce papers before you start fighting. Don't wait until you're retired before you start fighting. Don't wait. Jesus has called us to a great and powerful cause. And he's given us peace and love and joy and purpose and authority. And we need to use it and to be who God has called us to be and to challenge and to fight not people, not politics, not policies. We, all that stuff is fine. We need to fight the gates of hell. And it begins with prayer and it begins with us waking up and understanding and remembering who we are and we are the church. And I believe that if we step forward, that promise will stand true. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. Don't wait until it's too late to start fighting. Let's start fighting here and today. And I know I'm preaching a little too long, but I'm gonna say you one more other thing. I was so convicted of this over the last week or so yesterday when I went home. And I'm telling you this because I wanna challenge you to do this. I went home and my wife and the kids were going doing errands and I was so overcome by starting to just fight for my family, even in a way that I haven't. I, I could not, when I walked in there, I turned on some music and I just started to walk around my kitchen and pray for my family. And I walked in my bedroom and I started to pray for my wife and for my marriage. And I walked in Aubrey's room and I started to pray for her. And I walked in Hudson's room and started to pray for her. And I walked in Eden's room and I just walked throughout the house and I was praying until they got home and I was fighting for my family. Fighting for my family. This year, and over the next few weeks, we're gonna focus on what it means to really fight for our family. Fight the gates of hell. More importantly than that, I'm gonna call our church to prayer in a couple different ways over the next months, few months. If you're not paying attention, the world is falling down around us. And we are, Jesus said, we are the light of this world. And if we do not remember who we are and remember what we've been called to do, we will be the generation that seceded this country to the gates of hell, not because they were stronger than us, but because we chose not to fight. And I will not will not be a part of that generation and I will fight and die trying because I believe I believe in the power of the gospel and I believe in the power of eternity and I believe that Jesus will give us the power to kick the devil's teeth in if we will just fight can we do that let's stand let's pray